Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Sky Hilton, who is a historical martial arts instructor and fitness trainer. She's perhaps best known as the Nerd Trainer. So, without further ado, Sky, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Guy. It is a pleasure to be here. Ah, it's nice to meet you. Um, so, just to orient ourselves, whereabouts in the world are you? I currently find myself in West Texas, which is about a five-hour drive from the nearest city. It is extremely isolated. And we're in the Permian Basin. So a lot of people think of Texas and they think of cowboys and oil and all that kind of stuff. And that is exactly in the middle of where I currently live. Okay. In the wasteland. In the oil desert, as it were. So yes. why, the way you're talking about it suggests that firstly, you're not from there. And secondly, you're not 100% um, on board with being there. <laughs> is that No, no. Uh it's uh, before moving here, I actually lived in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area in California for 10 years. Right. And before that, I lived in Louisiana, which is uh, just east of Texas. And people, Louisiana is where New Orleans and Mardi Gras and Cajuns and all that kind of stuff is swamps and alligators. And, and I grew up there. So I grew up in the southern U.S. So living here is not complete culture shock. But having lived on the ocean, on the west coast of California, where it's beautiful and you could drive like 20 minutes and go hiking in the mountains and look at redwoods and there's trees and ocean and all these things to do. And then uh, moving here to where I am literally in a desert basin surrounded by oil rigs and there is, there's nothing out here. There's like no, there's nothing really to do because most of it is, is blue collar work. There's no real cultural centers. There's, it's just people live here for the oil. That's the only reason anyone lives out here is for the, uh, the energy industry in this area, which is not only oil, but it's also growing in wind energy and solar. Uh, but the closest city is a five hour drive away. And that's going to be either Dallas, Fort Worth or Austin, Texas. Uh, if we go West, it's El Paso and then more desert. And then New Mexico, and then, you know, atomic bomb testing. <laughs> it's like, and we go north, it's just farmlands and cotton fields for six hours until you get to like uh, Oklahoma City or, you know, Amarillo. So I'm, I'm really, really isolated here. And uh, so me starting a school here is more out of necessity than anything else. Because if I wanted to keep practicing my sword work, either I start my school and find and instruct people to to fence with me or I'm out in my backyard just swinging at a pail <laughs> by myself until you know an event comes along and I, I load up my vehicle and drive five hours or six hours or catch a flight to uh, to go you know fence okay, with now me. it's actually really interesting you say that well there weren't any schools around so you just started one right you had to start and mm -hmm. I get asked a lot about starting schools and I think everyone builds it up as too big a thing in their head it's like you don't have to go straight away into a you know massive custom-built facility with a million swords on the wall which nobody has yet um but no you so you just started you're in the middle of nowhere 
I'm, I'm guessing somebody has a job in the middle of nowhere and you had to go there for the money. Is that right? Uh, that would be okay. correct. Yes. California, uh, California, as beautiful as it is, is, is very expensive yeah. to live at. So if you're not making uh, six figures a year or you have a partner or someone who is helping you with that, uh, it is it is extremely hard to make a living there. And uh, as we know, there's a housing mm -hmm. crisis and it's it's you know, there's a lot of things happening in our country right now that just makes living in nice places very expensive. So, you know, we find ourselves where we find ourselves. And I found myself here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was able to lease buy a house here, but again, you know, it's not, it's not California. It's not what, you know, where you have a lot of amenities and a lot of things to do, uh, which actually aided me in finding people to come fence because there's such little things of interest in this area that having something that isn't like mundane or, or just something new, it's like, I can sword fight. That's, that's everybody's first thought. It's like, nobody told me to sword fight. I thought it was, I, you know, my mom never told me this. She told me to go to college, you get a job. Nobody said I could go sword fight. I've been robbed. So, you know, coming here, I started just, you know, because my partner, he he sword fights as well. And he had a friend and we uh, started at a little community center and we just got word out through social media and little bit by little bit, we would have people trickle in. And uh, before COVID hit, we had almost 20 people. Which, so that's yeah, a solid club for here. That's a solid club. Exactly. And we're at an auditorium in a community center like two or three times a week. Uh, and then COVID happened. And of course, we had to cut down. And then as COVID kind of just started to go up and down, back and forth, you know, we, we practice outside. Well, the that, there's there's and, plenty of space uh, in Texas. There, there is a lot, a lot of space in Texas. Uh, we took a trip to Scotland in 2019, and my partner, who has never left the states, uh, I, I'm like, oh, we're just going to rent a car. We're going to drive around Scotland, and he's like, well, what if we break down? I'm like, we're, we're in Scotland, Jake. We're, we're not. We're okay. <laughs> we can, we can yeah, just walk and, somewhere. <laughs> we won't be out in the wilderness with 100 miles of nothing around us. We'll be okay. Yeah. So. When you moved to West Texas, you already had a background in historical martial arts. Now, I know how you actually started because I've actually discussed it with a friend of mine. But for the benefit of the listeners, how did you get into historical martial arts? So um, I was actually really big into LARPing and different types of role play uh, back in California. But I've always been interested in swords and sword fighting since I was a little girl growing up in the 80s. You, uh, you know, we were inundated with all the cartoons where the hero always had the sword. You always had the right. main person who had the sword. And so, you know, swords were very iconic. Also, I grew up in a house where both my parents were huge into history. So, of course, I was in history. And those two together, you know, sword fighting and swords, I, it, I'd always had a fascination with it. And then when I was in California, I went to go to this one. We went to go see the Knights of Bad Astem at a theater. And they had some people there. So you, you went to go and see what at the theater? It was a silly LARPing movie called The Knights of Bad Astom. The Knights it, of Bad Astom. That sounds like that sounds like one that nobody should miss. It it was a it was an interesting film. It was a comedy, but regardless, it was a big thing for the uh, LARPing community where I lived. And they had different people from LARPs. Uh, they're representing. They're like, come play our LARP when the movie's over because it was a special showing. And they had one of the guys there that was with historic medieval battle, uh, basically like Battle of the Nations and things like yeah. that. And he's like, when you 
it was his turn to talk to the audience. And he goes, whenever you're tired of fighting with foam weapons, you can come fight with us. And he kind of told us a little bit about it. And I was like, oh, my God. I didn't know this was real. I didn't know I could really do it. So I talked to him, got involved. And I'm like, where do I start? Where do I start? And that's where they're like, oh, well, you should go see this guy who runs a sword school named Stephen Fick and mm-hmm. talk to him about it. And so sure enough, I call Stephen and I'm, I'm like on the ball on this. I'm like, I, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. And uh, I show up at his school, fish to water, immediately take to it. Uh, I'm there, you know, hours out of the week. And then a couple of years go by and I'm there days out of the week. And uh, for a while, it felt like I was one of the, the couple of people there with Steven. It's like we were just living at the school uh, constantly doing sword work, constantly looking at manuscripts. Uh, I got to travel with him in 2017 to Australia and New Zealand. Oh, wow. Uh, worked with some classes with him there. And uh, it was just a, a really great. I just dove into it. I did complete career change. I went from being a graphic designer to a personal trainer so that I would be in better shape in order to do the armored fighting and the other fencing and everything that it entailed. And I hang on a second, hang on a second, hang on a second. <laughs> All right, so so you are so into sword fighting that you quit your career as a graphic designer to train as a personal trainer so yep. that you would be in better shape to swing swords around. Yes, that is dedication. Yes, because it it turns out uh, you need a lot of back and core and shoulder strength in order to hold a sword out in front of you, especially if you're wearing gauntlets or uh, any kind of armor, because that is compounded with the weight of the weapon and the inertia and everything that is produced by moving. So, you know, men may take this for granted, but women need to really work at that. <laughs> and uh, Honestly, so, men need to really work at it too. Yes, they do. But it, but yeah, I'm, I'm like, wow, I need to get in much better shape to do this. So I took my training much more diligently. And uh, I, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to make a career out of this. And uh, I went ahead and shifted uh, careers got uh, different certifications and I've been a professional personal trainer sword fighter for the last six or seven years. Wow. Okay. You go to LinkedIn. That's what it has. It's got a picture of me and like all my, my gambeson and formal, formal sword attire. And that's what's on LinkedIn. I am like traveling sword person, personal trainer, Okay. Travel. <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen your LinkedIn profile. Yes, I, I research all of my guests before they come on the show. <laughs> oh, no. um, okay, so the let's start with the certification. Um, the NASM, what actually is it? And uh, why did you a, do it? It is a National Academy of Sports Medicine. Okay. And uh, there's a lot of different um, schools. Uh, most of them are online, uh, mm-hmm. and some of them are in person, that offer different specializations for different things and different certifications. So it's not particularly like you would go to a brick-and-mortar college for this, though you can go and get, you know, kins, kins, uh, my mouth. You can get a degree for this right? <laughs> because of the letter K, and I can't pronounce it. Uh, but uh, you can go and get degrees, and there are, you know, specialized degrees for this that are offered at brick-and-mortar schools. Uh, having already paid off my student loans, I didn't want to go back into student sure. debt. So I just went ahead and got a certification and I picked uh, NASM because they are supposed to be one of the much harder and more stringent schools to okay. get certified through. Um, 
And I did have to go in person for the testing and all that kind of stuff where you report to a testing center and sit there. And okay. I was going to wonder, because I mean, if you don't know how to demonstrate a sort of clean no, press, no, then, <laughs> then you could really hurt your clients. A- absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you have to re-up it. So once you get the certification, you're not just like good for life. Every two years, you have to retest and okay. learn, um, you know, continued education. So yeah. not only do I have just my, my personal training, I'm also a specialist in corrective exercise, um, working with senior citizens, working with youth, flexibility specialization, bodybuilding specialization. I'm also a nutrition coach. Uh, so uh, I do this professionally. I run my own gym. I own my own gym here in uh, Midland and with another business partner of mine. And that's also now where I teach my sword classes. So we have a shared space at the gym I run where I train people and do sword fighting. Okay. So I imagine it's easier to make a living as a personal trainer than it is as a sword fighter. Is that true? Uh, yes and no. I, okay. I kind of feel like if I was in a place where I had a, access to a bigger facility, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. like the big facility with all the fancy swords on the wall yeah. uh, and the right kind of advertising, I think you could actually make enough money to where you could make a living doing that, especially if you were very... Uh, talented and outgoing and you had the availability and resources for you to travel and offer classes and make money off of that. And there's a lot of different ways you could, you can make a living off of Steven, Steven does. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've done it for 20 years, but obviously it is, it is doable. (laughs) It is doable, Uh, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, in historical martial arts culture, generally, particularly in Europe, people aren't used to paying professional instructors which I think is why 80% of my income comes from Americans <laughs> who are used to paying for me. Like, well, that's, oh. that's just how Americans are. We just throw money at problems. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, there's a problem. Let's throw money at it. And maybe that'll, yeah. that'll make it go away. So, but uh, I found that actually combining the two, both do the, um, the sports medicine specialization, mm-hmm. all the health stuff, as well as working with sword people, it really helps when I'm doing instruction on the t- uh, body mechanics. Yeah, of course. Because I can see when, from spending all day watching people and making sure that they're moving correctly, when I go to my sword classes, I can see where people are like, okay, this is why we're doing it this way. This is why we do not position our guard this way because we have we don't have structure and I'll demonstrate it. And everybody yeah. else there and go, oh, and then they'll try it and be like, oh, yeah, it doesn't work there. Yeah. So knowing the body mechanics is extremely helpful when instructing people. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm all about the body mechanics, as, mm-hmm. as you know, people who read my books and whatnot will know. Um, and has it been your experience, it's certainly been mine, that most people who come to swordsmanship classes um, – can barely walk correctly. A lot of people come in deconditioned. And uh, I would say that, yes, I have witnessed that. I've seen people with two left hands, two left feet, and they will try and try and try, and they just can't get the mechanics. But No, what what I mean is is they have, for example, massively restricted range of motion in the ankle because they always wear footwear that constricts the ankle and they never... They never go into a squat. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, Ankle, knees, hips, spine. Uh, A lot of people just move through this world without thinking about their movement. So why would they come into sword class with the same kind of uh, 
you know, frame of mind or behavior. And then you have people who have a martial arts background or any kind of sports background and you show them and they get it immediately. Yeah. So it's where people, some people know their body and they have a sense of proprioception. And so they're able to take to it immediately where other people have never had to do that. And so you have to kind of work a little bit more to train them. Okay. So for people listening who want to be better at helping their beginners, what would you say they should look out for when your average, should we say, computer programmy sits in a chair all day um, sort of person comes along and wants to do swords and stuff, but their body is all over the place. Where do you start? Well, that particular type of person, they're going to have like bad posture and rolled shoulders and probably lack knees. But I, tr- I always start with the big things first. Because yeah. if you try to correct everything, they're not going to learn anything and you're going to spend your entire class with that one person. So what I focus on are the basics. I start with the feet up. You know, make sure you're holding the weapon correct. Your, your posture straight and you're moving the big picture moving correctly. Uh, if you sit there and try to nitpick every single little detail of the posture, you're not going to get anywhere. So focus with the big gross movements first. And mm-hmm. that may take a while. But once they get the big gross movements down, not even 100%, maybe about 70% down, then you can kind of start making them aware of the smaller details and kind of work on those just a little bit at a time. And and that, i found, is the best way to go about it. Start with the big picture first, and then as they start to improve, focus on the smaller and smaller and smaller details. And if you even even correcting them or, you know, trying to say, okay, now that you've got this down, I'm going to nitpick you. Because you've gotten good enough at this, I can start to nitpick you. And that way they don't get so frustrated about, mm-hmm. oh, but I just got that down and now you're telling me I'm still wrong. You know, if you tell them you yeah. got that right, now I can really nitpick you because you've gotten better. And then they're a lot more open-minded to it. Yeah, and, and it's important that it's it's never going to be perfect. And no, so no. and so it's, it's a question of getting it righter and righter and righter mm-hmm. rather than it was wrong and now it's right. So... So I, I try and train my students out of even thinking in terms of right and wrong when it comes to these things. It's more, is this working? Is this better adapted to purpose or not? Yes. And that's another thing I explain when people, because you have students come in who are all shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of compare learning sword work to handwriting. You know, when you come in in primary school, everybody learns to write their letters this exact same way. But by the time you get into, you know, secondary and college, everybody's handwriting is totally different because everybody is different. Everybody holds their pencil differently. Everybody's hands are different shaped. Everybody thinks different. Everybody moves different. And your sword fighting is going to evolve like that. So you're going to find things in the form that are going to work best for you that aren't necessarily going to be wrong or anything. It's just that you're going to take these certain aspects of like if you're doing rapier and you're going to find the ones that work best for you to your body type and your, your frame, you know, your mindset when you go fence where other people may have a complete, you know, someone who's six foot four mm. is going to fight differently than someone who's five foot four. Yeah. So you can't expect everybody to behave the same. And that kind of goes without saying, you know, sure. Well, but it's, it actually is worth saying because again, for people who have, for example, just moved to the middle of nowhere and have started a club and have no background in instruction and, and no formal pedagogical training or any of that sort of thing, that kind of advice is actually useful to have, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's, 
Um, it's tempting to have this kind of platonic ideal of what this particular move should look like and then expect every student to conform to that ideal. When in fact, that ideal may only work for someone of this particular, I don't know, proportion of leg length, the back length or whatever. Yeah. And that's something I've run into. A lot of people learn, uh, particularly in the U.S., because we don't have a lot of schools and so mm -hmm. big, is from YouTube videos or, or other, you know, media. And I've yeah. met a few people who are like, well, I watched this video and that's not how they did it. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that, too. It's like, I've watched well, this video. And uh, that's not how they did it. And I'm like, well, well, show me how they did it. And they'll show me. And I'll be like, well, um, I'm not saying they're wrong, but if you go. To <laughs> yeah. Everybody you can't, you can't say they're wrong. A little differently. So um, we'll practice how we're doing it here. And if you're unhappy with it, we'll, we'll figure something out. But, you know, if you're just learning from videos and you have no, you know, hands-on experience, then you're missing out on a lot. You're missing out on, on a lot of the finer details of, of the sword work. So um, that's one thing that is, that is kind of problematic when you don't, when you don't have that person to person to learn from it, it's very difficult to just go from books or videos when you don't have that three dimensional kind of interface to learn the form, to have someone go, yeah, don't put your toe here, move it an inch over that way. It, you can't relay that in a video. I, I, I don't actually use technical corrections like that at all anymore. I used to, mm -hmm. but I've moved uh, entirely to, um, if I want, if, if they need to stand in a particular way to do a particular thing, there's a reason why it has to be that way, mm -hmm. right? So what I do is I adjust the environment so the only natural way for them to stand is that way because that's what's going to, enable them to do the thing they want to do so for example i want somebody to lunge further i move the target slightly further away yes yeah so mm -hmm. i've and i find because the bit of the brain that handles language is not the bit of the brain that handles movement so i find that i get people to move a lot better a lot quicker if i don't use any kind of verbal corrections at all okay no, that makes complete sense because our brain knows what it wants to do. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, I do that same technique similar when I do uh, instruction and training. It's like if you're doing something in a pull-up, our natural inclination is to like shrug our shoulders and just yeah. muscle our way up. When I'm like, don't think about pulling yourself up. Think about bringing your elbows down to your side or, or other things like that. It's like we, our brain yeah. knows what it wants to do. It's like when we were kids, we didn't have, and this is particularly true with people with pronounced upper body strength is they try to shoulder through everything. And uh, that's something that I'm sure you run into in sword work as well as they, sure. they're all shoulders and they're not utilizing their body mass or anything like that. So yeah. Getting the hands properly connected to the feet is the goal. Yes. Yes. The, the, <laughs> the pathways from hands to feet. You have to say everything starts with the feet. You have to get those pathways together. Yeah. So. Okay. I have a question for you as a personal trainer. Um, you obviously you have a kind of a suite of uh, exercises and training things that people can do. You know, push ups and squats and overhead presses with kettlebells and you know armband stuff and weight stuff and all that sort of thing. Okay, if there were, say, are there, should we say, two or three exercises that you wish your sword students already knew before they came to 
your sword classes. So two or three exercises from your personal training stuff that you wish they knew before they came, or you wish they were practicing before they came to the sword class. I know uh, which mine would be, but let's, let's hear yours first. Uh, I would honestly have people do agility ladder until their feet fall off. What is uh, agility ladder? So agility ladder is a little ladder, like a little rope ladder you put on the floor. And okay. they use it in different like sports, like football and stuff. But it's mm-hmm. basically you do different things where you move your feet in and out of the squares and you do it linearly and laterally. And it's a good okay. way to teach proprioception for it's connecting the brain to the feet. Yep. And you learn better posture and movement and you don't end up just sticking in one place. Uh, but uh, yeah, everyone should just go to Zumba class because not only would you have to work on footwork and movement in uh, a tempo, but it'll also work on your endurance and your cardiovascular. <laughs> yeah, I've been to a Zumba class once. My, mm-hmm. Some friends of my wife um, who do Zumba, um, there was a Zumba party held in this theater in Helsinki. And literally there was these like professional Zumba people on the stage and everyone in the kind of, it felt like a theater, maybe it was a nightclub. And everyone was sort of getting up and sort of doing, doing the Zumba things. And then they were going, sitting down and having drinks or whatever. I just was up there doing the, doing it for like two hours straight because, <laughs> because it is compared to fencing, it's very low intensity. Yeah. Right. It, it has the same sort of, to me, it felt like the same sort of physical intensity as walking, but it had all of that clever technical stuff in it. Like you had to move your feet like this and then you had to move your arms like this. And it was great fun. Yeah. I would totally endorse your, your Zumba recommendation. Yeah. And, and it's, I don't know what kind of music they were playing, but I've been to Latin. Zumba classes and those are much more high. Those are very high <laughs> intensity. I, I was like, I didn't keep up with those ladies. They were, they were going and yes, very technical. So, uh, other than that, as far as, um, training upper body, your core, your back and your shoulders, uh, by far are the muscle groups that I see need to be used. Uh, battle rope exercises are really good for those mm-hmm. because they keep, uh, they work on your shoulders and, um, your core, your back, and they're fun. You can do all kinds of stuff with battle ropes. Uh, also, kettlebell swings. I'm a big fan of functional stuff. See, I can't do kettlebell swings. My lower back won't take them. Oh, uh, are you squeezing your butt? I, I've, I've had like like pretty high-level professional instruction on the kettlebell swing, and at the end of it, and I, I, I was you know, doing it for a while, and then my back went out again, and the guy said, kettlebell swings are not for you guys. Stop it. So well, then if they, if they say, don't do it, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, kettlebells and lower back exercises, the trick with those is like, you don't really want to feel it in your lower back. You want to feel it more in your hamstrings and butt. Yeah. Uh, and engaging your butt is extremely important for that. Uh, but Indian clubs are another one. Working your oh, uh, forearm, yeah. forearm muscles are another good one because working your forearm muscles and developing those are going to help you avoid uh, that fencer's elbow from, uh, particularly side sword and other uh, single hand sword stuff. I, I, I actually have a online co- free online course about looking after your arms because historical sword people tend to have absolutely zero knowledge of how to you know, keep their wrists and elbows healthy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, pe- there's like just, just simple weight exercises yeah. and stretches and whatnot make all the difference to... Yeah, and you don't have to go high weight with it. I mean, you no. can just get a pair of uh, small dumbbells and just right. do it for like five... Five minutes a day. It doesn't you, take very much time. So. Yeah. I mean, the weights I use for my forearms are about three kilos each. And that's mm-hmm. fairly heavy. Most of my students are using one or two. Yeah. Um, I could do about five to 
five to eight kilos on my dumbbells, on my right arm. My left arm's not as developed. Anytime I sword fight with my left arm, it's like I have very bad video game lag. It's like my brain's in the signal, and it takes about three seconds for my left arm to do anything. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I do have uh, definitely my right arm is much more developed than my, my left when it comes to single sword. But, uh, yeah, being a personal trainer is is helped me tremendously in uh, sword instruction on the nuances and the physicality of it, particularly. And so I can guess, but why do you call yourself the nerd trainer? So um, when I decided to do this career change, I went out drinking with the, with the girls, as one does. And I was sure. talking about it, and we're all very drunk. And then one of my friends goes, oh! You should call yourself the nerd trainer because you're a nerd and you're going to be training nerds. Mind you, this is in the middle of Silicon Valley where pretty much me and Everyone's all of my friends are nerds. Yeah. So, and of course, we're like, oh, that's a really good idea. So she takes my phone, she logs in, and she gets, she makes my Facebook page for me right then and there on the spot. Wow. On my Facebook, the nerd trader. She gets a URL for me. The nerd trainer. It's not active anymore. I just sat there on my phone while we were all drunk, and I woke up in the morning and I had I had social media. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's like, and and it's like, okay. okay, I'm. So it was a drunken decision. My right. my professional name is a drunken decision. Yes, it was a drunken but, but it seems, night out. It seems to fit. It, <laughs> it works out. Fit. It works out. I have a lot of people. They're like, what? What is the nerd trainer? Who is the nerd trainer? Why? Why the nerd trainer? Then they meet me and they're like, oh, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> you are a, you are a huge nerd. So. Yeah. And, and and I guess also it makes it makes it clear that nerds are welcome in your classes. Yeah. So uh, one thing is I try to be uh, very open and make sure it's a welcoming place for people of pretty much any kind of ilk. And... Um, you know, I take care and of course, you know, I want to make sure if anybody has any injuries or any kind of issues or or anything they have concerns about, uh, I want to make sure I address them to make sure it's a welcoming environment and they don't feel intimidated or, you know, just outside. Uh, I, I take a lot of that. Uh, for, I learned from Stephen Fick and the way he runs his classes where yeah. uh, everyone is equal we don't have like a master like somebody somebody tried to refer to me last year as a maestro or a master and i was like oh, <laughs> hang on hang on here i'm i'm yeah. not <laughs> no 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 please don't call me that that's embarrassing cuz i'm definitely not that um so uh you can call me an instructor you can call me a coach uh you can you can call me uh, many things but a maestro a master please don't call me that <laughs> i am still very True. much a student <laughs> but but also the thing is though the whole term master has been um massively over emphasized or over thought about in the historical martial arts community because uh, historically it just means teacher and like when i went to school the teachers there were called the masters right or mistresses yeah right because that was that was just the word that was used for teachers mm -hmm. um and it didn't imply any kind of sort of, I don't know, supreme excellence or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's like, you know, you go to university, you get a bachelor's degree, you carry on, you get a master's degree, you keep going, you get a PhD and you keep going and maybe you get a professorship and it sort of goes up like that. Mm -hmm. So like, it isn't really a thing, but in... It's like if you got a master's degree in geology, you don't go around going, I am the master of the rocks. I am the rock master. I am the rock master. I am the, the, the Mr. Stones. 
but uh but yeah so and i think that kind of comes from like the whole you know eastern martial arts uh kind of mythos and mm-hmm. and pop culture around it it's like yeah he is he is a great master he you know pai Mei yes. or whoever is like he he has been studying all his life in a temple on top of a mountain and he knows all the secrets and can kill a man with his pinky you know that kind of thing so um or bow to your sensei yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. You know, the way I look at it is that, you know, looking historically, Fiore de Liberi, if he was indeed, uh, he certainly trained knights, but he, he was also like, his, he had a, Nicola d'Este was probably his patron. Nicola d'Este mm-hmm. being Marcus of Ferrara at the time, and Fiore being the son of a knight, but not a knight himself. Mm-hmm. Um, or you have Salvatore Fabris, who is fencing master to the king of Denmark. Um, I don't think the King of Denmark was bowing to Maestro Fabris, do you? Oh, absolutely not. No. Right, exactly. They, so, <laughs> so they're like, definitely in their employ. And if you and in the manuscript you can see they're they're pandering to their employers. Right, exactly. Yeah. And and in, in you know, in eighteenth century um military fencing, it would usually be a sergeant or non commissioned officer of some kind who was training the officers in the fencing side of things. Yes. Right. Yeah. And again, who's who's really in charge in that relationship? Well, in, between the sergeant and the soldiers. No, between the sergeant and the lieutenants and the captains oh. and the colonels. Oh, it's the sergeant. The sergeant. <laughs> Clearly, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I think I think we sort of got a bit infected with the the notion of sort of martial arts teacher as sensei or sifu, and yeah, and it's it's completely it's completely unnecessary. It's, it's, it's totally non-Western, I think, to treat it like that. Yeah, and, and I kind of like, like my students, we, we hang out and we, we cut up and we're, we're all friends. And I, I think of myself more like as a leader of my club. Like I kind of decide, I take the time to study the mm-hmm. manuscripts and, and go off and, and study, which is another thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, but, you know, I'm the one that kind of spearheads the direction and goes out and yeah. learns everything and brings it and back. They're, they're paying you for instruction, right? I, I haven't made any money yet. <laughs> they pay oh, me. Really? Most, of it, most of it goes to just buying loaner gear and swords and insurance. Oh, okay. Okay. Pay. So they so, do so, pay. But so your, your real income is coming from the personal training thing. Yeah. It, my, okay. my money's coming from the personal training. Um, they do pay me. But again, it's just to cover, you know, swords. So everybody will have a sword to use for people who don't have any yet. Uh, Protection gear, the space, insurance, things like that. So, okay. Now, you you said you want to talk about um, studying the manuscripts and. Yeah. So, one thing I've discovered since moving to Texas is I really took for granted living in an area where I had about four schools within an hour's drive of where I live. So, you know, other than studying with Stephen, you know, I could drive somewhere else and I could go practice with another school. Um, living here, it's five hours for me to go to the closest place to practice. So it's become increasingly more important for me to go to events or sword camps or or just travel and visit right. other schools so I can go and practice. Because when you spend all your time teaching people, you don't really get to practice too much. I do know exactly that because when yeah. I moved to Finland, when I moved to Finland in 2001, mine was the only historical martial arts club in the country. I founded it and it was the only one in the whole of Finland. <laughs> so. Yeah, so, 
So every so, okay, so I traveled a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> every time I get a chance, I, I try to go. In fact, my ever since COVID regulations have let up, uh, the only traveling I've done has been to try to catch up on my sword practice. So okay. last year I went to California for two weeks and Yay. that was just sword. You know, I, I went to different schools with another friend of mine who runs a, a club in South Texas. And all we did was sword research. All we did was go and practice with other schools on the West Coast for two weeks. And uh, recently, like going to Austin or different places in Texas, I went to a sword mm -hmm. camp last uh, month where uh, Martin Fabian was there. I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> everybody was there for his class. But uh, uh, but yeah, so any time you can travel to uh, go learn from a different school or different per person, or invite someone to your school to teach a class, it's so, so useful. And it's important for people who are new to it to realize that you are not the only authority. Bingo. I, yeah. When I started my school from the very beginning, we had at least four guest instructors a year, right? And that was part of the reason. I didn't want my students to think that there was only one historical martial arts teacher and only one approach. Right. So when I was traveling, most of what I was doing really was meeting other instructors and figuring out who I wanted to come back to take back to Finland with me to teach a seminar. Mm -hmm. um, and it, yeah, it makes all the difference. It makes a huge difference. And it also encourages them to learn new skills and, and learn uh, new studies. Right. So, you know, because so many people will come in and be like, I only want to do longsword. Or, and there's lots of memes about that. You know, people come in yeah. longsword and then they see sword and buckler and they're like, ooh. So, uh, but it, it gives a lot of people, you know, it, it's obvious. It gives them a much more broader scope of uh, historical martial arts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what particular styles do you do? Well, I started with uh, Fior. Uh, I still yeah. focus on Fior and that's what I teach my beginners because okay. I find it's a lot easier to uh, teach than some of the other longsword techniques. And it okay. gives them a good foundation, uh, particularly with uh, footwork, uh, teaching the sedno and things like that, the allegory. It's easy for people to wrap their heads around. And I know Meyer and other ones, they have that as well. But I'm more, I learned Fior, so I teach Fior. Uh, okay. But I also uh, study uh, Morozzo, Vadi, um, picked up on, uh, I've worked with Fabri. I'm working with uh, Gigante right now, or Gigante. Everybody pronounces it differently. Gigante. Gigante. Uh, well, the, the, all the, the, yeah, the Europe, the English speakers pronounce it all differently, but the Italians all tend to agree on how, how these words are pronounced. It's a mixed bag over here. You never know uh, what you're going to get. It could be. I know, I know. Fabri, Fabris, Febreze, and nobody, nobody knows. Well, <laughs> well most well, of my Italian friends would say Fabris. Fabris, okay. Fabris, Fabris, because uh, most people well, over here I'll, have heard I'll, I'll Febreze. Yeah, it's not Febreze. Um, this Febreze is a fabric spray. Should so, so, so we just ask him? Just yes, please. Pull in. There we go. Pull. Oh, how fancy. It's very super fancy. Yes, for the listeners, I just went and got my copy of the 1606, 400-year-old. See, oh, you're a fabric person. Oh, you what, like? does it smell? what does it smell like? <laughs> Trying to smell. It's, it smell. It smells like a dusty old book. Oh, it's the best kind. Yeah, because yeah. it's like 400 years old, but yes. Okay. Seeing as you're a fabulous person, I thought you'd like that. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. No, I will, another thing, I will completely nerd out over uh, manuscripts, original manuscripts. Having been an art major, I look at it as like, oh, especially Tebow. I'm like, oh my God. 
Look at old Matt. That, that's a crazy book. I got, did get to see an original Tebow at uh, Brian Stokes. Brian Stokes. Oh, right. Book. He's got one, is he? Okay. Oh, yes. He's a big collector of manuscripts and uh, got to look at those. But uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, um, okay, so you... Uh, so how much of your curriculum is sort of borrowed from Steve and how much is your original? When I first started... All of my curriculum uh, was borrowed sure. from Stephen because I didn't have my own. Uh, over the years, I've I'm still I still draw quite a bit from his curriculum. Mm-hmm. I have made a few changes that suit my teaching style a little bit better. Okay. And um, one of the things I like to do is I'll start off with a basic foundations drill that I have the entire class, which my classes nowadays are between eight and ten people. And I'll kind of watch while one of my other senior students kind of goes through the basic drill. And it could be anything from like doing cuts with footwork. And I'll kind of observe everybody and see who needs to work on what. And I will kind of divide everybody into smaller groups and put them with senior students depending on what they need. Uh, The more advanced students will work with me and people who need to work on fundamentals a little bit more. I'll have them work with senior students. And that way the senior students kind of get to learn through teaching a little bit because they have Mm -hmm. to think about what their corrections mean because the new students will be like, well, why do I need to do this? And then they'll be like, oh, crap, why do you need to do this? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I know why you need to do this. And so they kind of learn, they learn through teaching. And uh, but that's the beginner class. I also have an advanced class for those senior students. So they're not stuck teaching, you know, the whole time, obviously they want to progress as well. And a lot of times our advanced uh, classes will draw on whatever fundamentals we were working on in a beginner's class. Like uh, in the beginner's class, I was introducing tempo and they would start from a, you know, a static position and do the drill. And then the advanced, I would have us work on that same thing where they would have to do it uh, on the round where they would be moving and try to match each other's tempo. And I would give them goals like you have to do this if you see them do that. So one person's mm-hmm. not just being a fendente bot. They're actually working to get around that. Person. A fendente bot. That a is a great expression. <laughs> yes. Hey, it's a robot that produces fendentes in a regular yes. pattern. Yes. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No one wants to, wants the job as fendente bot. And I'm like, you know what? You'd be the best damn fendente bot you ever were. You make those <laughs> fendentes awesome. So, Throw some uh, Sinestras in there too, man. <laughs> Show them what for. Excellent. Um, okay. Now, I have here that, that you were involved in History Channel's Forged in Fire, Knife or Death competition. Yes. What that was, was all that about? Uh, well, my friend Ray Harrington, who lives in Lodi, California, he was uh, auditioning for the show. And Stephen Fick was too, and a few other people in, in our little HEMA circle out there. Mm-hmm. And he contacted me, Ray contacted me, and he's like, hey, they're looking for women to be on the show. Would you be interested? Because I had done some cutting with Ray. Uh, okay. And uh, So like, what, what is, for people who haven't seen it, which includes me, um, what actually is the competition? The competition is an obstacle course of crazy things that you are required to cut, break, bash, stab, and get to the end in order for ah. you to progress to a harder obstacle course. And okay. then you win money. <laughs> uh, okay, so actually, now now you say that, I think I think we've had a guest on before who's done it. Um, I'll I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. So so basically, it's like an obstacle course which you get through with your sword. Yes. 
And um, okay. the the first season, they had people who did knife sports, like blade sports, where they would have yeah. uh, the knives and they would go through. But the obstacles were like cut through barrels full of dirt. Uh. <laughs> and and so the second season and and a little bit toward the uh, some of the first. Uh, you'd see people, they opened it up to much bigger blades. So the second season, almost nobody had a regular knife. Everybody came in there with some kind of ginormous blade of some yeah. kind. I know uh, several guys were there with long swords. Uh, some people had falchions. Some people had like custom made choppers, uh, lots of kukris, you know, all these tools that they felt would be able to get through the crazy obstacles. Like when, and we didn't see the course until we got there and it was in the okay. middle of summer in Georgia and it was really hot, but the course consisted of cutting, you know, where anything where we cut through sugarcane stalks and then cut through three inch PVC pipe full of gravel and rocks. Oh my God. Chop through. That will mess up your blade completely. Oh, oh my God. I was so, I was so terrified. So going through the course, I'm looking at it and I had practiced because I watched season one and I saw, okay, I have to be able to cut through fish. I have to cut through a chicken. I have to cut through a block of ice. I have to cut through wood. I have to cut through PVC. So I set up an obstacle course in my backyard, ran through it, filmed it, sent it there, auditioned, and I got approved. Um, but, you know, I had practiced all this and the type of sword that I got was the Morgan Bible falchion, the chopper that is oh, like good the weird choice. Yeah. thing. And yeah. it was made for me by Tom Kimber. Yeah, here okay. in the U.S. and it's very light. Actually, he asked me. He goes, "Do you mm. want it heavy or do you want it? Do you want it light?" And I'm like, "Uh, let's go with let's go with light." So it weighs like like maybe a little less than 1.5 kilograms. It, it weighs under well, three so pounds. Okay. It's very light. Under three pounds. Okay, that is pretty light. Is it two handed or single handed? It is a two handed one. Two handed. So very okay. long. Yeah, it's a very long handle. Mm. And the whole blade is not very long. I mean, it's well under well under a meter long. I would say it's probably, uh, I don't know, what is it in inches? It's, tell it's tell me inches. 28, 30 inches. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but that's what I went in with, was that crazy thing. So I thought, I'm okay as long as I don't have to pierce anything. <laughs> as that's long about as 75 centimeters. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as okay. I don't have to pierce anything, I should be good with this sword. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I had to cut through when I hit that first PVC pipe full of gravel, I could feel the scratching on my blade oh, and I was like, Oh nice. God. And the, and I had to pay for the sword. This was not an inexpensive sword. Yeah. So I'm thinking, Oh, please don't break. Please don't break. It didn't break. It went through everything, but you could feel the gravel scratching on the blade, uh, breaking through the ice. I used the, uh, the blunt edge, the, yeah. the weird the back edge edge yeah uh it goes through meat like like nobody's business i mean well, that's it, what it's it, designed for so um i'm going to share a secret with you go on then this is something i did the the privilege of living in texas where everything is legal so we have a problem with wild boars here and they're considered an invasive species right. well well i had a hunter friend of mine who cleared them off his property he just shoots them yeah. Uh, I asked him I'm jokingly one day. I'm like, oh, yeah, you should bring me one of those boars and I can test my Mac chopper on it. And uh, so he, he shows up one day with a freezer with a boar in it. Not a huge one. Um, maybe, you know, about maybe dog size boar. Right. You know, decent sized dog size boar. And this was a freshly shot boar. And I'm like, oh, man, why did he... What am I going to do with this, this boar? I'm like, well, there's only one th way to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got so, to barbecue um, it. 
It's Texas. No, it's barbecue, we can't, right? We can't eat the meat here because it's it's uh they feed on all kinds of weird trash and everything. So ah. we actually aren't supposed to eat the meat from a mild boar in, in oh, the wow. state of Texas. I'm That's sure some people sad. do because they're like, government can't tell me what to do. But you're not supposed to because it's not supposed okay. to be good for you. Um, so uh, I I put on my, my hazmat gear pretty much and went in the backyard and attempted to decapitate it with the Mac chopper. And and I quickly I, I could not be an executioner. I'll I'll tell you that. I getting it sure. set up alone, I was like shaking. I'm like, and it's not even alive, it's dead, you know? And I'm like, yeah. oh man, but it's still got the skin. I mean it's a full bore. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man. And I did that, I lined it up and I did that first chop and that sword, oh my god, that boar's head, its neck was like about twelve inches, about a foot thick. Yeah. And the Mac Chopper almost took it off in one hit. And wow. I was just like, oh, my God. These swords, swords work. on the battlefield. Yeah, swords work. Imagine that. But, you know, testing it on actual, like, big flesh with the skin. Because mm-hmm. cutting a, a, a butcher ch- chicken or a slice of loin or a fish, it's already, you know, been skinned and everything. But, you know, an animal that had been dead like a week, you know, with the bone. And it went yeah. through the bone. So I could just imagine it gives you a really real visceral appreciation and respect for these weapons to to feel how it feels going through flesh and bone and skin like that. Uh, I, I didn't film it or put it on it. That that was I felt like that would be in poor taste. You, so yeah, I think I think uh, you were right not to. I yeah, mean. yeah, I didn't. But uh, but I um, but also yeah, I didn't. That was definitely an experience, not one I, I necessarily need. Say everyone needs to do. Uh, I don't. Res- I don't. I, I don't advocate. You don't recommend that. it. Yeah. I don't recommend it. Uh, take it from me. It's 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 rather nerve wracking, and and evidently, if you any of in in the past, anyone using weapons like that for war, uh, it's it's just it's intense. It's 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 mind blowing that that was the case where they would just wade through and hack off hack people up with that kind of sword yeah. So. And, and, and yeah you you could take limbs off with it no problem oh absolutely it's my self-defense sword <laughs> <laughs> okay now I, I would like i would like you to to send me a photograph of it so i could put a photograph of it in the show notes because so oh, people yeah, can really see it because because it sounds yeah. like a hell of a sword um okay so how did you do in the competition uh i did okay uh like I said, I had practiced on all these things, but the last op- obstacle was nylon straps that had been oh pulled tight that we were supposed to cut through. And That's I hot. instantly, my brain was like, oh no, I didn't practice against that. And I don't know how tight they are. And so I went through everything, got through all the obstacles, you know, cut through mm-hmm. all the meat, no problem. Got through the ice, got through the two by four, got through the bamboo. You got the- through a two by four. How yep. many, you're not supposed to chop two by fours with swords. You're not. And that's the thing. You're, you're really not. Axes, maybe. <laughs> Axes, yes. Swords, no. It's, and and my, my particular falchion does not do. It is so light and so fine and so sharp. Yeah. It just gets stuck in the wood. Wait, so, wait, yeah. Yeah. So um, some guys, they did a lot better than me on that, but I did eventually get through the two by four. Lucky um, but yeah, it took me a while, but I finally got to those stupid nylon straps and I'm like, ah, okay, it's the last thing. I could do it. And I cut it at too sharp an angle, and my sword bounced right off. 
Oh, and in retrospect, I lay awake at night now thinking, I should have just muscled through it. I should have just <laughs> done a horizontal cut and just muscled through it. I shouldn't have tried to be technical. And the funniest thing is that when they announced me on the show, you know, they ask you, what is your background? What kind of martial arts have you done? And I took kendo for three glorious months in San Francisco. And uh, I put that on there. And the whole time, and I put, you know, my longsword and HEMA and yeah. everything else, you know, X amount of years doing longsword, three yeah. months kendo. And they only talked about my kendo. Well, of course, that's, that's <laughs> what I like, recognize. Yeah, yeah, Bill Goldberg's there like, I could see that stance. She's totally, I could see that kendo at work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, okay, whatever. So, Hannah, so, so you only got one cut at the, at the nylon? Oh, yeah. Yeah, one cut. It, you get toward the, uh, the last ones, the meat and the nylon straps. You were only given one try. So the meat I got ah. through easily. But yeah, yeah, those nylon straps, I bounced right off. I was like, oh. <laughs> so you didn't so get through to the next round. Okay. It was so much fun. No, I didn't. I wouldn't have got to the next round anyway because they go by time spent. And that two by four and ice really took, an hour. Took, a yeah. lot, took a lot of time out. Uh, okay. So I wouldn't have made it to the next round anyway. But I really wanted to finish. And I was disappointed and kicking myself in the butt because I didn't because of that stupid angle of my cut i'm like i should have just should just took it but uh, it was extremely fun uh we would all meet later in the trailer we're just all we wanted to do was just run the course again it was like we were like kids on a playground we're like i just want to do it again i want to do it again because i have an idea <laughs> I want to try this one if i had done this cut better or i had done this differently you know i, I could have gotten uh, that so it was so great what fun. what was the most effective sword for that kind of thing do you think uh, my other choice was going to be a Kirkry. Like a really I, was th- I was thinking Kirkry. Uh, in fact, one of the other contestants, uh, Lady Sensei, uh, Jerry Chisholm, she, uh, she's a martial artist on the East Coast and runs the Women's uh, Martial Arts Network. She went on there with a huge Kirkry and she, she performed very well. She, she got an injury while she was on there. She did something to her hand. I think she got hit, but, uh, but the Kukris are, uh, that was my first choice. And then I had a couple of people talk to me and Tom really wanted to make a Mac chopper. Okay. And so I, I agreed to, to his discretion on the blade and we did a Mac chopper and it worked really well. It, it did work really yeah. well. But I, that, that two by four, I'm thinking yeah, you I would have done better with a Kukri. <laughs> you would have done a lot better with a Kukri. Yeah, I would have done a lot better with a Kukri. The curvature of the blade curving in yeah. on the Mac it's is more much like better an axe. On, yeah, it yeah, a kukri would have worked better. But yeah. you know, I still I still got through it. It just took me a little longer. Uh so but it was really, really fun. And I met some cool people and I actually got called back for a uh blades giving thing they wanted to do uh that year for Thanksgiving, where they just okay. did like little bumps of us doing stuff. But the of uh, the ones I picked to perform, like the little stunts, were the hardest ones. So I'm okay. like, I want to try to hit the apples coming high speed down a ramp and oh. catch them in there with a knife. I think I got one. <laughs> <laughs> even even Tam, Lou Tam got up there and tried, and I don't think he could. I think he got one. Uh, and then I tried some other crazy one cutting through bamboo, and the bamboo they used was dry. Oh, God. So my first try, my knife actually bounced off the, the dry bamboo because oh, they wanted you to get a cut and then double cut up as it with fell. A- with through a with bamboo, a through, through dry bamboo. It was dry bamboo. It was like corn could, stalks or something, but it could, was dry. Could anybody do that? 
Did anybody succeed? I was the only one who attempted it. But long story short, since I failed because I picked the hardest ones, they didn't put any of the shots of me trying in the little bumpers for blades giving. Uh, I don't okay. care. I got a free trip to New York and they paid me, so I don't care. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I, it, it does sound like they're trying to wreck your blade because you know Babu's got s- these silica crystals in it, which will scratch the hell out of your blade anyway. Yeah. Much wet. Yeah. Luckily, Dave Baker was there. And so he was able to uh, loan me some different blades because the blades I brought okay. were a little too big. Okay. So uh, he's like, I got a knife for you. So I was able to use <laughs> his, one of his knives or something. So. I guess you're not allowed to resharpen during, the, during these events. They allow you to sharpen before. Uh, in fact, Wait, funny story to. about yeah, go funny ahead. story. Uh, Kenneth Tucker, who was on my show, he went to go sharpen his sword, and they have one of those uh, belt grinder with a belt on it. Oh yeah, and he had an oak shot style longsword, and yeah. the longsword cut the belt, and the belt flew off and cut his leg open. Wow! Ken. We didn't know where Ken went. We're like, did they kick Ken off the show? Where's Ken? <laughs> We don't know where he is. And he's this big, jolly guy. And he had on a kilt and a big beard. And he was just cutting jokes the whole time. Really great guy. And we're like, we hope we didn't get him. Well, he shows up about halfway through and he lifts his kilt. And there's this huge bandage on the interior of his thigh. And he's like, tells us what happened. He's like, yeah, they had to run me over to, you know, to the first aid tent. And I had to sign all these waivers. (laughs) So we're like, did you do that with the sword? And he's like, no, the belt flew off and it sliced my leg open. So we had to go get that fixed before uh, he could compete. Yeah. uh, For sharpening swords, I wouldn't use any of those. I mean, when you're, when you're making a a blade, you'd use this big belt sandery thing for grinding and whatnot. But for the actual sharpening of a sword, I'd want to be doing it with a, like a diamond stone by hand. Yeah, I, I've, I I've got a- $300 worth of different sharpening implements, all ranging from diamond to porcelain to yeah. all kinds of all kinds of files. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a massive sharpening geek. I mean, I, I used to be a cabinet maker. <laughs> so, yes. um, you know, I, you know I, I start sharpening at about 1,200 grit and go up to about 10,000. And Ooh. yeah, and, and for a lot of cabinet work, that's your, necessary. Your and everything. To yeah, of course, absolutely. Off. You got, you got yeah. to. But um, you, I don't do it with swords because the sword doesn't need that level of polish mm-hmm. on the edges. But when you want a piece of steel to go through some really tough old oak and take off a just a beautiful thin shaving, then it needs to be ridiculously sharp. You know what? I have a question for you, guy. Yeah, go on. And and you may have answered this in another podcast or one of your books, but. Uh, when we sharpen our swords nowadays, we, we generally do it for, for, you know, cutting through tatami and stuff. And so we make them very, mm-hmm. very sharp. And then we talk about, well, how sharp were they, you know, back back when they were in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance? Mm-hmm. Because the first thing a student tells me when I tell them to put their sword on their shoulder or go to half sword, they're like, well, I'll cut my hand. And then you have to explain that, well, they're not like the sharpness then isn't like that. So how sharp uh. does this sword need to be to be effective? And do what you needed to do on an actual battlefield. Well, okay. Sharpness is always specific to purpose. Mm-hmm. So I sharpen my the, the sword I'm going to use for cutting tatami differently to the sword I'd use for, for example, armored combat differently to the, to a rapier, for instance. Yes. Right? Um, so generally, and this business about holding, you know, gripping blades and whatnot, it's everyone's like, oh, you can't do that, you'll cut yourself. And so I take a sword and I cut through something with it and then I grab it by the middle and stab it really hard into something and they're like, oh, 
Oh, you didn't cut your hand. Yeah, there's right. a way to do that. <laughs> yeah, and it's not difficult. You just grab no, it. No, it's not. Um, you just have to grab it properly and not whack the edge into your hand because then it will chop you, right? But, yeah. um, okay, it's certainly true that modern steel is more consistent than medieval steel. And it's true that we are able to polish it up to, you know, to higher levels of sharpness than they were they were probably able to do. But, you know, there are tales of feats of arms done with a sword where the sword would have to be really, really sharp. So, for example, um, Don Perenino, Portuguese knight in the, I want to say, early 14th century, but I'll need to check the dates. Um, one of his famous feats was... The royal barge was going down the river in Spain. I think it was the Guadalquivir, but I'm not sure. I need, need to look it up. And these um, fishermen had strung a rope that, in the in the um, the sort of biography written about Perinino, where this the chronicles of Perinino, um, where this is written, it says it was the, the thickness of a man's thigh. I think that was probably an exaggeration because that is I've one very thick rope. Yes. Right. Anyway, so this rope is strung across the river and it's going to sweep the barge, which will then probably capsize and everyone's going to die. And Peronino runs down to the end of the barge, so you know, the, the, the prow, pulls out his sword and with one stroke cuts this rope in two. Right? Wow. And the rope separates and the barge goes through and the king is saved. Hurrah. Right? Yeah. For that to be even vaguely plausible, that sword has to be really properly sharp. That, that's a Mythbusters episode right there. Yeah, quite. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I think we'd have a hard time finding someone who was that good at cutting um, in that sort of high-pressure environment, right? There is, there's a lot of nitpicking we can go in on that. Like, what was the rope made of? What was the tautness? Was it wet? Well, was it dry? I would say the rope was certainly wet, mm-hmm. right? Because they would have to have taken it across the river, in the river, and then pulled it tight, which pulls it out of the river. So the rope was wet. That helps. Um, It must have been made out of natural fibers like hemp, probably. Okay. Something like that. It had to be because, well, the only alternative back then would be um, either silk, which would be ridiculously expensive, and pointlessly, and fishermen can't possibly afford a silk rope like that. I mean, who would ever make you one wouldn't? Of them? You wouldn't have a silk rope right. for that. No. Yeah. Um, so, or possibly out of um, some sort of animal fibers or stuff, but that, that would be pointless. I mean, no one would ever do it. Yeah. Right. So, logically, it has to be made out of something like hemp. It must have been wet because you wouldn't have kept it dry. I mean, if it's been there for a while, it might have dried mm-hmm. out. So it's, it could be dry, but it will certainly have been wet recently. Yeah. And um, if we look at the size of average men th- men's thighs, you know, during that time period. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I'd, I'd say maybe, what, 10 inches across, something like that. Yeah. We'll give the benefit of that. We'll go um, 10. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I. that would take me... But but many, do we have historical blows. reference? Do we have pictures that show the ropes that size? No no no. We have, well, I'm, I'm, there may be such things, but but there would be no illustrations that would be reliable for that sort of detail because you draw the rope as thick as you wanted it to be in the picture. It's not it's not a technical diagram. 
They didn't uh, do we're going to, someone's going to have a video where they're going to go through and do all the research for us. And yeah, yeah, that, I, have, I have recreated this rope using, yes. using techniques of the time, and now I'm going to cut through it yeah. <laughs> on, a, on a river yeah. while moving, using the mass of the barge behind me to help <laughs> cut the rope. Yeah, so the um, thing is, the sharper the blade is, um, okay, well, okay, sharpness has basically two components, right? It's the angle at which the facets of the edge come together, mm-hmm. right? So the, um, for some reason I'm blanking on the technical term. That doesn't it's make okay. any sense at all. It's not um, important. It's bevel, the bevels, yeah. right? Um, and the level of polish, assuming that the bevels actually meet at, a, at an edge, mm-hmm. which they often don't the way some people sharpen, um, then, so it's the angle at which they meet, and, okay, the degree to which they meet. So are, do they actually truly meet or is there some kind of ridge in the middle which they shouldn't be? And then the, the level of polish on that, right? Mm-hmm. And I would I would say that hugely is dependent on the design of the sword. So you have a sword with a wide, flat blade. The bevels are going to be coming together at a pretty acute angle. But yeah. on something like a rapier, the bevels are going to be at a much steeper angle. Right, so it's so much more obtuse. So you have a lot more metal behind the edge. So it's more of a kind of chopper and less of a slicer. Um, so if you think about the difference between a logging axe seen edge on and a the sort of knife that um, you'd use to fillet a fish. Mm-hmm. Um, so those angles, they really matter and they vary enormously from sword to sword. So yeah. how sharp they would have been would be also be determined partly by that angle and the degree of polish and whether those edges meet, mm-hmm. whether, whether, whether the bevels come together. So so sharpness is determined by context. Well, I mean, sharpness, it can be kind of absolute. I mean, you, you can talk about how how many molecules of steel are at the edge and what shape those, you know, basically how much surface area the edge has and therefore how much of, how much, the pressure is sort of intensified because sharpness works by concentrating force into a very narrow space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so basically it's getting that, getting the number of atoms that the force is being distributed through into the target as few as possible. That's how you get it sharper. Yeah. 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 Um, but also like the crystal structure of the blade of the steel itself makes a big difference to the kind of edge you're going to get. Um, because there are some sorts of steel where no matter how sharp you try and get it, the crystals won't polish down any further and they kind of break off. So if you look at it, if you look at it in, if you magnify it enormously, it's like a uh, kind of a, a rocky row of boulders Mm-hmm. Whereas a different kind of steel sharpened to the same degree with the same polish might have, might look much more like, um, a pitched roof. Yes. Yeah. So actually there's a really good book on sharpening and it's, uh, it's called, it's by a guy called Ron Hock in California. He makes, primarily he makes woodworking blades and he makes them amazingly well, but he has the perfect edge. It's called, it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, I'll have to look um, any, anyone interested in sharpening? And one of the things he has, he has photographs um, of edges taken under a microscope, so you can see what these edges look like depending on what grits they've been sharpened with. 
It's fascinating. I, yeah. So I would, I mean, yes. But medieval people shaved, mm-hmm. right? They did. So they they could get steel razor sharp, by definition, razor sharp. So yeah. how sharp they got their sword would really depend on how sharp they wanted it, and that would depend on what they wanted it for. Yes. I would say. That's a very long answer to your question. No, I enjoyed that, <laughs> that trip down the rabbit hole. It was, it was enjoyable. I got a book out of it and a story. It was, it was I forgot, is this, whose podcast is this? Am I asking you questions? <laughs> well, you know, every now and then I do get people on to ask, you know, to interview yeah. me to kind of turn the tables because it's kind of fun. Um, okay, so let's, let's turn the spotlight back to you. What is <laughs> the best idea you haven't acted on? Oh, gosh, selling everything and just moving to Europe and the UK and just studying swords over there. <laughs> I've played oh. with that idea so many times. I'm still playing with that idea. And, What's uh, stopping you? Ah, man, I own a house. <laughs> and and uh, basically, it's just money and uh, and the time to create the money. I'm hoping that if my gem and sword school do a little bit better um, and COVID, COVID threw my plans off. For two years, I remember sure. uh, me and a friend of mine were planning to go to Edinburgh in 2020 and just kick around up there and do some sword work at um, at the Big McBain Institute. Yeah, I think they McDonald's. have a McBain, huh? No, it's a uh, McDonald Academy yeah. of Arms. I think yeah, you probably mean. yeah, yeah. McDonald Academy of Arms because they have the Big McBain event. But oh, yeah, yeah sure. I wanted to get up there, and they've got a uh, a couple other different sword schools. But uh, sure. I, I enjoy Edinburgh. It's one of my favorite cities. I lived there for five years, so I know exactly what you speak. Yeah, what you speak and yeah, uh, yeah we were great. talking about going for like three months or so, and just you know getting mm-hmm. getting a small apartment and splitting the cost and just studying uh, history and doing sword work and studying up there, and uh, you know just wherever else I could go. I wanted to go to Italy and and study and oh, yeah. just anybody who'd take me. <laughs> You've got to go to Italy. You've got to go. Basically, to Italy. just couch couch surf uh, sword study. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's just having the, um, and I had cats, I had senior cats. They sadly passed this year, but you know, uh, I'd, well, that's, I'd, that's sad, but also <laughs> liberating. It, it, it is, it is. But, uh, but yeah, it's just mostly making sure that my affairs here are taken care of while I'm gone because, you know, going, going for two weeks or, or a month really to me isn't enough time. You know, I'd much rather spend three, four, five years <laughs> yeah doing it i mean it's it's obviously i've devoted uh a lot to the study uh sword study so so what you need then is a source of passive income that will keep paying you money independent of your location yes so that's something that i've been trying to get going uh obviously i'm two years behind now because of covid but something i've been trying to get going in the works where i can have passive income at least enough you know, to get by. I don't need fancy yeah. accommodations or anything. You know, obviously I'm like, can I sleep on your couch? Uh, but, you know, just enough to, to make sure everything's taken care of. Well, can I can I recommend um, books and online courses? I I, I moved to, I moved to Britain in 2016 for family mm-hmm. reasons. And we were only able to do that because I was no longer dependent on showing up and teaching every day. Right. And the reason I was no longer dependent on showing up teaching every day is because I had books that were making enough money that we could actually live on it. Not live on it in very fine style, but we could live on it well enough that, you know, and then the online courses came after that and they are even, even better than the books in that regard. 
So I, that has been something that has crossed my mind. Uh, I have to admit, I have uh, a bit of imposter syndrome, like okay. I guess a lot a lot of people do. And uh, I'll come up with a good idea, and I'll for some reason I'll talk it out of it. I'll talk myself out. Like uh, same reason people ask me to come to events to teach, and um, I'll just be like, oh, you don't, I don't really have anything to add to that subject that you know other people are already doing, or uh, or I'll be like, I don't want to teach. I teach all the time. I just want to take classes. You know, or it's mm. one of those things where it's one of those wonderful ideas that seem great. And then you just slowly talk yourself out to it. And I'll be, I'll admit, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> well, it's, it's really common. Well, yeah, I mean, the imposter syndrome thing is, it's ubiquitous and it's super common. And basically, you have a choice between imposter syndrome and Dunning-Kruger syndrome, right? So... Mm -hmm. Either, either you know your stuff well enough that you know you don't know everything and therefore you have imposter syndrome or you know so little that you think you know everything and therefore are erring on the side of Dunning-Kruger, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. no, no one has a perfect evaluation of their own level, I think. Right? Yeah. And a bit of imposter syndrome is better for your students than a bit of Dunning-Kruger. Because if you have a bit of imposter syndrome, you will check your references, you will... Go for extra training. You will, you know, just you you have the stimulus to get better. Okay. Right? Yes. So a little bit of imposter syndrome is actually useful, but when it when it gets to the point where people are inviting you to teach at events, which presumably means they'd cover your expenses, and you say you, no, you, no, no, I'll just sign up to the classes, and so you yeah. have to pay your own way. That's silly, honestly, because <laughs> that's quite a lot of money that that you could not have to spend, which you could then spend on things like trips to Europe or equipment for your sal or Facebook ads for this beginner's course you're running or yes. whatever, right? Right. So um, the thing that I kind of – I've actually written a blog post about it, and I should probably put a link in the show notes because that sort of has my organized thoughts about it. Ooh, that'd be brilliant, um, yeah. But I think the, the real trick to it is you have to feel the fear and do it anyway. Which is actually the title of a very dodgy self-help book, which has that one good <laughs> idea in it and the rest of it is tosh. Um, and about which, incidentally, one of my favorite singers on the planet, Hazel O'Connor, did a song about basically the idea in the book called Feel the Fear. So, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's basically, it comes down to bravery, boldness, which mm -hmm. is a martial trait. So. Yes. You have to, and here's, here's the mental hack that I used, right? As a teacher, you have to model right behavior to your students. Yes? Yes. Okay. Would you want your students to be fearful or bold in that situation? Ooh. That's, Probably that's bold. Yeah, bold. Yeah? For sure. Yeah. And therefore, therefore, as a teacher, you have a duty to your students to be bold in that situation. In the same way, I mean, there'll be situations where you have a duty to your students to model fearfulness. So for example, if somebody pulls a knife and asks for my wallet, I'm just going to hand over my wallet and if I get a chance, just run away. Yes, right? thank you. Because, yeah. because that is what I would want my students to do in that situation. Yes. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, you've always got to be bold because you're a martial artist. No, in this situation, in this specific idea... The specific yeah. opportunity. What is the correct thing to model to my students? And for me, that means it doesn't actually matter if I'm afraid. Yeah. 
right? That's a I good mind. Just, that's a good brain hack because now you're putting yeah. not just you; it's other people you care about. You right. know, in the equation, it's like I have to set a good example. It's not just me I'm exactly. responsible for. It's Bingo. everything else. So that's a good mind hack. That's a good mind hack for a lot of things. So. Yeah, and, and if in doubt, you can always call Stephen and say, Stephen, I've been invited to teach at such and such an event. Do you think I should go and teach or am I not good enough yet? And you know Stephen's going to say, oh, for God's sake, Scott, come on. Yeah, of course he's you like, can why do did you even call me? Right, exactly. Why did you even call me? <laughs> but, it can, but it can be yeah. useful to get permission from an authority. Yeah, it is because, it, you know, it's the can I, daddy, can I? Yeah. You know, can, can I do this? I need, I need the... The mentor, you know. Yeah, and eventually, but that's that's part of Stephen's sort of long-term job as your instructor is to Mm -hmm. provide that as necessary so that you can develop as you should. Yes. Right? So, you know, I'm I'm volunteering my friend Stephen's time here, but I know he would agree with me that if you're faced with that kind of decision, then call call him and ask him and he's certainly going to say do it but he'll actually say do it and then it's not your it's not you going oh I'm so fucking good at this and I'm so wonderful and I can do this teaching thing at this event (laughs) Stephen said I I was ready to teach at this event so that's what I'm (laughs) going to do oh wait if I fail I'll be like Stephen why'd you let me do that (laughs) right exactly and if if you completely screw up your class and the whole thing is an absolute disaster and you shouldn't have even gone you have somebody else to blame oh that's right yeah, it's great. But of course, it's faultless. <laughs> but we know we know that it's going to be absolutely fine, and you'll really enjoy it. Oh yeah! And Every like time I class. actually go and do a class, you know, it, it turns out great, and everyone right. everyone enjoys it. It's it's just right. me being hypercritical. Right. Uh, but again, as you pointed out, that's it's better to be on that end of the spectrum than the other, where you're absolutely right. not critical of yourself, and you roll in there giving everyone you're a bad instructor, giving bad information. And uh, I've been to a couple of classes where that was the case. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so only a couple. Oh, not, I'm not well. going to name names. <laughs> no, no, don't name names. Don't I'm, I'm I would, not, I would edit not. it out if you name names. <laughs> it's and not that kind of show. Names. Like Sky did it. it wasn't me. <laughs> uh, excellent. Okay. Um, all right. So my last question: Somebody gives you a million dollars or so to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend money? And don't say I would spend it on a giant trip to Europe because you can't. You've got to spend it on historical martial no, arts No, no, it's for, it's for the community. For the community. Although, although several of my guests have said, well, I'd pay off my mortgage. I was like, that isn't really what I was asking, but okay, fine, all right, carry on. Well, uh, unfortunately, a million dollars doesn't go as far as it used to. That's true. Well, you can have 10 million. Uh, 10 million, 100 million. Yes, Yeah, sure. It's imaginary Um, money. Have as much as you want. uh, What I would actually do is start a fund for people to have resources to either travel or teach. Okay. That's a popular uh, choice. mm. But uh, uh, that's the only thing I could think of that would be an overall improvement for the community, particularly in places where, you know, everybody's spread out very far, like U.S. or Australia, where it's, you know, everyone's very spread out. It's hard to travel. You know, you have to cross land masses and oceans and it's expensive and there's a lot of resources. It takes a lot of time. Uh, But having, you know, a fund available for uh, people to apply for uh, to either go travel and either teach or uh, travel and take time and learn and basically just do sword study. And that fund would, you know, pay for whatever expenses they need and also to kind of take care of stuff uh, back home. But, you know, not not for people to be like go off and frat party in Paris or wherever, but 
uh, but to do legitimate study and have sponsors by different schools. So you would work it out with a sponsor at a different school and they would approve you to come and study for this amount of time. And then you would apply for this scholarship or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then they would fund that. That's a really good idea. I mean, having my school in um, Helsinki for a long time, uh, one of the advantages of having a full-time space is that people would come from literally all over. I mean, from Chile, from Singapore and Australia and as, even from Sweden, which is right next door, but, and, and Russia and wherever else. Um, and it was having the sale, although it was not legally, you couldn't legally stay there. It was an industrial building. You're not supposed to stay in there or anything. But, you know, we had a kitchen and a bathroom and a shower and, you know, whatnot. And if after I left, some students stayed to clear up and then they were still there the next day because obviously they come in from whatever hotel they must have been staying at. Yeah, it's not my business. You're here early. <laughs> right, yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. Right. But it just meant that there was um, no accommodation costs that they had to worry about. And they could be eating out of supermarkets rather than eating out of restaurants because they had a kitchen. Yes. Right. And there was a washing machine so they could do their own laundry. Yes. Right. And that, just that, it lowered the barrier enough that really all they had to take care of was the flights and sort of, you know, grocery money. Yeah. Right. And it made a big difference. So, so having a fund like that would have, would have been really helpful. So I think that's a, I think I'm going to give you the money. Oh, oh yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. 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 There's, there's but also, you know, also having the accountability for the money and the sponsorship right. from different places would help with visas and stuff as well for different, you know, because every country yeah. has different rules for people coming in and out and staying for certain periods of time. Yeah. And if you were, you know, particularly devout in a particular range of study, you may need to be required to stay longer than what uh, a normal visa would require if you just came to visit, you know, for instance. Sure. And so, you know, you can work out an education one or, or even a working visa or something like that if you could work with the government to get that kind of stuff. So uh, obviously there would be hoops to jump through for this kind of fund, but it would be something that would be beneficial for people who really, really want to uh, increase their knowledge base and increase their experience for what, whatever reason, whether they're just a diehard student and have no desire to run their own SOL or people like me who uh, I I want to gain the experience so that I can not only enrich myself, but enrich my students. I, I would prioritize the fund for people who would be taking that knowledge back and transmitting it to others. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you teach one person who keeps it to themselves, then all that energy has gone into one place and stopped there. But if you teach one person who then goes and teaches 10 more, who then go and teach 10 more and so on, you you get mm-hmm. this this spread. The benefit is spread. So I think yeah. it's a more efficient use of the money. And and I've met some people who are very, very devout. And, well, devout, that makes it sound. They're very invested. They're very invested yeah. in this. And they, they live in places where, uh, like my friend Eddie Lopez, who runs a club in, in, around, in South Texas. And mm-hmm. he is extremely isolated. It's on the very tip bottom of Texas, right next to Mexico and the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And he is even more remote than I am. And uh, he doesn't make a lot of money. He doesn't, you know, have a lot of resources at his disposal, but he is extremely invested and he spends all his money buying, you know, stuff for his little club and, and trying to find stuff for him. And he would be the type of person that would benefit from this. You know, someone yeah. with limited resources who is extremely isolated. It's not easy for him to drive to a Austin or a large city because it's still a 10 hour drive for him. 
Yeah, you know, which, which I mean, you know. even by American standards, that's a long drive. That is a long drive. Ten, ten hours. You know, four hours is usually within reason, but ten hours <laughs> is a very easy drive for people who live in very isolated parts of the U.S. And there's a lot of people here and in Australia and other places where, you know, they, we all have long drives. I don't want the Aussies to get mad at me. He's like, we got to drive you know, really far too. It's not just you. Um, but uh, where they would be able to have people help them to get those resources so they can go and uh, grow their knowledge base. Yeah, uh, that's that's a pretty good... So when we were when you were discussing this, I thought, you know, quite a few people have had a similar notion. I just had a thought. I should probably put together a... Um, so how to improve historical martial arts with a million dollars list of, <laughs> of the, of the sort of best ideas that my guests have had, um, uh-huh. to, because, you know, there is money out there. Oh, yeah. I, I don't happen to have a spare 10 million just to kind of lend you for this or give you for this project. The sofa cushions. Yeah, yeah. Or just, you know, check, check in the pockets of my, you know, yeah. pockets of the, the trousers hanging up in the wardrobe. Yeah, well, there's probably a couple of million down the back pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it would be really interesting actually to put together a list of, of these ideas that guests have had because then people might start acting on them. Maybe it's, it really, the human community is kind of like herding cats. I have discovered. Yes. Yes, uh, very much so. We're, we're very individualistic and, uh, come together for fun times and fights <laughs> and then yeah. go our separate ways. <laughs> you know, even getting people to stand in a circle, we more end up with a potato shape. <laughs> now we form potato. Okay. Yes. Uh, and salute. But, um, you, we would need some kind of like very centralized, um, God. Well, Actually, see, we wouldn't, we wouldn't need a governing body. For I this. don't want a governing body. We're cats. No, <laughs> yes, governing bodies are horrible. And I've, I've no, been involved no. in a couple. But we need some kind of central pillar, you know, where we can meet and, and all spray it and mark it with our territory like cats and leave, you know. But um, we come back every once in a while to check yeah, it. Yeah, but something like, something like a fun. If there was like a, this yeah. chunk of money and it's a yeah. fund that has been set up whoever sets up the fund and sets the rules and you know creates the hoops that need to, mm-hmm. need to be jumped through and whatnot then it's up to them to say what those hoops are and what the rules are and it's it's like it's the fact that the historical martial arts community is largely yes made up of mm-hmm. lots of separate cats which do not yes. like running in the same direction very true but, but if you have something of sufficient gravity, people will come to it. Well, right? if you started uh, uh, a fund where everybody bought in with a membership and paid dues, mm-hmm. then as a member, you would be able to apply to use those dues and travel. Yes, and also schools but, could also become... Yes, yes. But the problem with that is that is that then the funds will go to the people who are rich enough to afford the dues. That is true. Yeah. So I would be, I would be more inclined. See, one idea I've had that I I haven't figured out how to execute on it properly, but it's, it's going to happen eventually is, um, on my online courses, I have a sort of monthly membership thing. So people can just join for a monthly membership fee and that gives them access to all of my courses. Right. And I've been thinking of taking a month of that income and using it to finance a trip 
to teach a seminar somewhere that couldn't possibly afford me under normal circumstances. Oh. Right? So yeah. what 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 that would do is it would pay my expenses. It wouldn't you know, obviously wouldn't pay my salary or anything. There's not that much money coming in. Um, but it would pay my pay the expenses for the event and if it's structured just right so I thought it'd be also good to sort of tie it into some kind of charity community thing there so let's say mm-hmm. let's say there's two thousand dollars there then and the flights and whatnot are maybe fourteen hundred so there's six hundred left and that money would go to for that club would then give that money to some local charity, I don't know, maybe a homeless shelter or something like that. And so the club becomes better tied into its local community and that maybe help sort of make connections for it there. So it's not just, you know, guy flies into the seminar, goes home again, but there's hopefully some kind of long-term knock-on. But I haven't figured out how to do it in a way that... It's a tricky thing. Yeah, yeah, it needs to be totally transparent. It Uh It needs to work in terms of helping the people it's supposed to help and it also needs to not bankrupt me yeah we kind of discussed (laughs) that a little bit before i moved to texas of uh, a scholarship where Mm -hmm. people could chip in for a scholarship and then people would apply for the scholarship and you just treat it like a scholarship yeah uh, through whatever school or organization or whoever sponsored it hmm and then you know people who need it can apply and you know, just like you would apply for a regular scholarship, yeah. But there has to be there has to be an application method. There has to be a there's got to be a committee process. somewhere. <laughs> there's got to be a committee in the process. There's got to be a committee yeah. somewhere. Well, I actually I actually have my committee already. I've I've talked to some of my colleagues and friends, and they've said, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do that. So the committee side of things is that's that's sorted out. Oh, there you go. To, uh, I have to figure out the process. Right there is deciding who makes the decisions. Yeah, and obviously it can't be me. Well, no. <laughs> Cause, cause, <laughs> no one wants that responsibility. <laughs> no, 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 not not for the responsibility, but but it's mm-hmm. because then because then in it's impossible to get away from the um, guy playing favorites. Yeah, the favoritism. Yeah. Yeah. It 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 mustn't be okay. Well, oh, no. You know, no, no, it definitely doesn't need the person who donated the money. It needs to be a neutral, neutral yeah, set of people. Yeah. Who, who nothing, will, no ties with the money. And yeah, and who will deploy it for the you know for what they think is the best use for the long term good of the art. Well, if there was something like that, how often do you think? How many applicants do you think would apply? I've no idea. Me either. <laughs> I was thinking of doing it maybe once a year. Oh, once you a know. year would be good. Like a yearly, you know, mm. apply for the the half sword will travel scholarship. Yeah, actually, that's a good that's a good thing to call it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I even have a All right. Now, I, I I do know from experience that I've you, you've triggered off a train of thought, and there's a significant risk that we're going to spend the next half an hour of me kind of going, oh yeah, and 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 these half sentences will come out, and it'll you're like oh it, wait, it, it won't no yeah, uh-huh. and it'll be an absolutely terrible podcast episode for that last <laughs> chunk. Edit that out. Nobody has to know. Yeah. Edit it out at the end. Nobody um, has to know about that. <laughs> Maybe somebody will watch the podcast and they'll be like, I have I, I'm down for the sponsoring that scholarship or Well maybe. maybe. Yeah? Yeah. Um Okay, so uh one thing we haven't covered is how do people find you in your school? 
I do most of my um, advertising on social media. Okay. And I, um, since, and word of mouth too, because okay. um, a lot of the communities here, people who are interested in swords, because there's only about mm-hmm. maybe 150,000 people in this area, right. uh, immediate area. So people who are interested in sword work are usually interested in similar things like yeah. uh, gaming or history, uh, history enactment, things mm-hmm. like that. And, um, but I have a social media presence as well. And every once in a while, like if I do an event, like May the 4th, uh, we did a lightsaber thing in the park downtown. And I did a little Facebook event of May the 4th, bring your lightsabers and everything. And this was the second year we did it. And we had like 30 people show up. Oh, excellent. And some of these guys were from the 501st, you know, the stormtrooper reenactors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know we had stormtroopers in there. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I made contacts because now he's like, yeah. we need to do a big event next year where we can have a lot of people with lightsabers and more stormtroopers and have a big, you know, because there is a community here as isolated mm. as it is of people who are interested in swords. So as soon as you kind of tap into that, that vein of interest and yeah. circles of groups, uh, word of mouth spreads pretty quickly. So sure. once you kind of spend your initial advertising on that demographic. Yeah. And there, there isn't a lot of competition. You're not, you're not in competition with a million other groups and a million other clubs. It's, yeah. No, okay. no. We're, we're the only fencing school in like, gosh, I couldn't tell you how many square miles. Within a three-hour, <laughs> five-hour drive uh, right. circle around us. So Wow, that's, that's pretty uh, big. Yeah, and there's no other weapons. I mean, other than firearms – and some archery. There's there's no blade weapon type stuff. Right. And so we got a lot of people who come in and, and they want we did have this one guy we we, we affectionately called Scary Terry, who uh, came from a kindo background and he was an older gentleman with a chip on his shoulder and he just would not stop hitting us. But so but most of the people we get are very comfortable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like we we got you Terry and he just wouldn't stop. <laughs> yeah. But uh uh, but yeah, since I do kind of have a monopoly and, and I use the sword school, uh, which is just my moniker. It just ended up, you know, we, we originally started with Stevens, you know, Davin Rich sword school, but everybody yeah. in the, they're just, we're just the sword school because we're the only one around. And, uh, but I try to do other events as well. Like we did the lightsaber thing. Uh, I, we were doing a Celtic fair here until they canceled it forever mm-hmm. because they weren't getting enough people. Uh, yeah. but, um, I've been trying to work with other groups here to kind of do events that cater more to people who like the historical reenactment. Uh, they're interested in medieval and Renaissance and um, the kind of circles that would be interested in learning historical fencing in this area, of which there's quite a few people. It's just nobody knows about it. It's like right. a big, big secret. Nobody knows about it. Well, maybe this podcast will just blast it out everywhere and everyone, <laughs> everyone in the... Right. Because they'll be listening to it in their big old trucks in the old field. Well, shit, I didn't know about that. Actually, what I was actually asking was, um, listen to the podcast. If they want to find you online, where should they go? Oh, you have to ask me (laughs) specifically or I will just... Okay, no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, fine. We do have a website. It's theswordschool.org. TheSwordSchool.org. Okay, yeah, because I've got I've got SwordSchool.com, SwordSchool.net, and SwordSchool.org, and I've had those since two thousand. Well, maybe it's net. Let me. I'm pretty sure it's well, org though, but I gotta like double. So you're on the SwordSchool. Yeah, I have to get my phone. The SwordSchool. I'm pretty sure it's dot org. Okay. 
Yeah. All right, but, so people can find you there and sign up for classes. Nice, up your URLs. Anyway, uh, but uh, yeah, they can find us on there, or they could just search for us on Facebook. Which we're if they put Sword School Midland Texas, we're the only ones that's going to come up. So fair enough. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sky. It's been lovely to meet you. Oh, thank you very much, Guy. I had a very good time. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sky. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I should also mention that there are lots of pictures of Sky's mighty weapon that she used for her Forged in Fire Knife or Death challenge. So if you like pictures of big blades, it's a good place to go. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show, as always. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesordguy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Kyle Rowling, who happens to be the man who taught Ewan McGregor to use a lightsaber. And if that is not a claim to fame, I don't know what is. So make sure you don't miss it. He was also, I should hasten to add, um, the stunt double for Christopher Lee in the Star Wars prequels. So you definitely don't want to miss that conversation. So join us next week and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. While you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, leave a review. It really does help. And as always, of course, please do share this with your friends. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next week.